Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast with me, Tom Clark. Here with your weekly serving of politics. Some people are very you know, high risk in Westminster and Jacob Rees-Mogg is one of those people who does seem willing to advocate for a no deal, even if that increases the chances that we don't leave at all because MPs kind of intervene. And culture. Well, the thing is about Le Carre is that you want it to be grimy and slightly unpleasant and almost sort of quite boring. And later on, we'll be speaking to the former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, about his long piece for Prospect on how Oxford University picks its students. Not everyone goes there, of course, but the ones that do tend to end up running the country. So how can we make sure that this crucially important institution is open to everyone? The truth is, the blunt truth is that Oxford is more comfortable taking people who are better off. We'll have more of that later on. But first, I'm here in the Prospect studio with Samir Rahim, who's our culture editor, and Alex Dean, our politics correspondent. And first, to you, Samir, you've been watching some telly, I gather. Absolutely, Tom. I've been watching The Little Drummer Girl, which is the new BBC adaptation of uh, a John le Carré novel. Um, it seems that we can't move for Le Carré adaptations these days. Um, I believe they're going to be doing The Spy Who Came In From The Cold again quite soon as well. Uh, and only a couple of years ago, um, we had The Night Manager uh, with Tom Hiddleston. Uh, the Little Drummer Girl shows uh, in some ways how not to do a uh, Le Carré adaptation. Um, one good thing about it is that it's stretched over a number of episodes rather than being uh, shortened into uh, two hours. I always find the sort of shortened Le Carre films a little bit unsatisfying because the unspooling of the complicated plot is part of its attraction. Um, this is, by all accounts, the experts in the office tell me who've read the book, not one of his best books. Um, it does have the benefit, from a filmic point of view, of following Palestinian terrorists uh, from the late 70s and early 80s, hooking up with some quite sort of sexy German revolutionaries. Um, so it adds more sort of, um, I don't know, glamour to what is traditionally a rather unglamorous subject. Um, I was just thinking what made a great Le Garry, um adaptation. Um, the Night Manager, which is this is in the sort of the same mould as, was also really quite glamorous. Plenty of shots of girls on beaches and, you're, and by you're disapproving pools. of all this newfangled stuff. Well, the thing is about Le Carre is that y- you want it to be really grimy and slightly unpleasant and almost sort of quite boring. Um, the grind, the bureaucratic grind of spy work is what is really interesting in the adaptations that he does. There's the classic um, Tinker, Taylor and Smiley's People adaptations from the 70s and, and early 80s, which had um, Alec Guinness playing Smiley. And they were, you know, 
just the shots of 70s London and how depressing it looked um, is a vivid contrast to the 2011 Thomas Alfredson film of Tinker Taylor, which somehow managed to make the 70s look weirdly glamorous. Is this something about the way telly as a whole has changed since the 70s? I mean, it was obviously in the late 70s, there's very glammy James Bond films. And uh, like, so there was that mode available. But do you think our tolerance for a kind of, um, I don't know, thick glasses and raincoat version of spy work is is not what it was and if not why not it's possible it's possible it's maybe that we've just used up all the really good le carré books and we're on to the sort of uh, lesser ones now i think also when you're having a sort of bbc one adaptation as um the night manager was you have to satisfy all sorts of different uh, audiences and um sort of glamming it up um seems to be the only the only option. They might have more of an eye, I guess, on exports than they would have done back in the 70s. Absolutely. But it can still be done because in 2014, um, A Most Wanted Man, which starred Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, as a German spy tracking down someone who may or may not be an Islamist uh, terrorist funder, um, had exactly the kind of slobby, down-at-heel, unglamorous and wholly identifiable with lead character that we've come to expect and love from uh, from Le Carre. Alex, I know you're not one particularly for spy novels, but you do like to keep your little spying eye on proceedings at the Palace of Varieties. What insight do you have for us this week? I think it's something that all watchers of politics think about, is the recasting of the political map and how Brexit has change the fault lines um, and it, it's something that has become quite fashionable to say is that the dividing line has changed from what used to be right versus left to now being kind of open versus closed and, and uh, epitomised by remain and leave basically. Uh, I saw seeing some increasing chatter around the idea that there's a new fault line now particularly in Parliament between gamblers and those who are more risk averse you know Gabby Hinsliff is Guardian columnist is one of the people I've seen talking about this and I think it's quite an interesting idea actually and as the Brexit process winds on I think we're seeing the clash between those two sides really come out into the open and actually drive politics um, it, it's becoming Intriguing. the fundamental split so, so, so give us a, so, so you're saying that politics now is increasingly about personality whether you're someone who um kind of goes the extra round in poker or not i think i think so yeah and uh, so how does that translate into into brexit if you're if you're a kind of daring uh, dasher then then what do you do the reason i think it's 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 useful to see it as a dividing line in itself is because it cuts across right and left so the tory party and the labor party and also remain and leave so you've got uh, basically the question is for remainers and leavers whether they want to take the risk <laughs> of derailing the process altogether in order or the 10% chance that they get what they want. So for proponents of a second referendum, do they advocate for that and risk a no-deal Brexit? And proponents of a no-deal Brexit, do they advocate for that and the uncertainty that could result, risk that we don't leave at all? Some people are very you know, high risk in Westminster and Jacob Rees-Mogg is one of those people who does seem willing to advocate for a no-deal, even if that increases the chances that we don't leave at all because MPs kind of intervene. Devil may care, Samir. Can you see any other politicians around the place who strike you as falling into one camp or the other? Something that proves your theory in some ways are the Johnson brothers, as we're now have to call them, I suppose. Both recently resigned from um, the last few months and last week and, and from, from the Cabinet, but uh, for very different reasons. 
Um, one, uh, because I think the Brexit process um, isn't Brexity enough, and one, because it's too Brexity. Um, but in a way, that Johnsonian buccaneering spirit is what unites them both, isn't it? I think that's right, and that's a, that's a perfect example, actually. Um, both Joe and Boris Johnson uh, are taking a risk, despite being on either side of the Brexit argument. So in one sense, they're on kind of opposite poles, but in one sense, they're very much on the same side, and that's that they're taking a risk. Boris is taking the risk that in pushing for the hardest possible Brexit, he could lose Brexit altogether. And Joe is taking the risk of in pushing for a second referendum, he's rejecting the deal, which could mean that we leave in the hardest possible way. <laughs> yes, and they're both saying nice things about each other, aren't they? Which is interesting. I mean, there's another place where, um, you know, there's uh, this logic is at work, which is in the Conservative leadership stakes, I guess, because lots of people, for different reasons, quite like the idea of getting rid of Theresa May, if only they can work out who she is replaced with. But for both sides, if you're at all risk-averse, um, there's a gamble that it might go slightly the wrong way, Alex. And I wonder if that's why... These kind of fabled 37 letters or whatever it is that are meant to be collected by Sir Graham Brady have never showed up. Is it actually that there's an overwhelming majority on the uh, nervous rather than the daring and dash side of things? I think so. And actually, I think that's something to uh, be pleased about. <laughs> In an incredibly hectic time of huge amounts of uncertainty and unprecedented legal constitutional change i'm glad we've got some cautious operators um and you know may i know that's quite a kind of small c conservative thing to say and uh, and not particularly exciting but actually i think there's something to be said for basic sensibleness i mean this is samir like exactly what theresa may is now going to be grappling with she's going to be um appealing to people whatever their political persuasion who temperamentally are like alex and think we need a bit of caution now and she's going to be saying you follow me otherwise you're going off the cliff um do you feel like the mood of the times is one where that kind of appeal to caution is going to win? Well, British voters are generally being described as conservative with a small c. And the last, you know, we, we had 18 years of a conservative government and got rid of them only when um, it seemed um, that they'd gone too far in their policies and the same with Labour after 13 years. Um, I wonder if people, when they voted uh, to leave... Um, Phil Collins has a, an excellent line in um, this month's pros Prospect, actually, uh, whether they were actually voting for a sort of hard right, um, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, buccaneering, on-your-own Brexit, or whether they were just given a choice about an institution but they didn't really have much affection for and just decided to, to vote no. I don't think they really did vote um, to have their lives disrupted in a way that um, may well be possible. Now. I think that's... Uh totally plausible and and the other thing i'd add is that it's not just i mean I'm, I'm sure there is a dividing line in the country at large between uh the risk averse and risk takers and that that plays out in our politics i think at the moment i'm particularly interested in the way that line divides parliament and it seems to really kind of cut across cut an x across it and it, you've got all these dividing tribes already and now this is yet another uh, another dividing line for us to consider um i know it gets complicated but it's worth thinking about i think and I'm sure you'll bring us back to it again, Alex. So thanks very much for that and also to Samir. But now over to our interview with uh, the former Guardian editor and I should say my old boss, Alan Rusbridger, who I was speaking to a bit earlier. Alan's now in charge of Lady Margaret Hall, the Oxford College. And he's been paying particularly close attention to admissions, who gets in and who doesn't. But I began by putting it to him 
that there's so many universities in Britain nowadays that perhaps it doesn't really matter so much who happens to get into Oxford. Yeah, I can see lots of people thinking that, but nevertheless, Oxford and Cambridge have got, I think, a special place in the education system here. Um, they're the most sought-after universities, rightly or wrongly, a place at Oxford or Cambridge uh, doesn't guarantee uh, an, uh, an, uh, an escalator ride into the judiciary and an editor's chair or a seat in the House of Lords, but it certainly helps. And they have, in a way, these two great universities become uh, totemic of a, a debate about who gets into the best universities and why. What, what, what do they have to prove in order to win a place at these um, august institutions, which are, from my experience, three years um, of being at Oxford, you know, really wonderful uh, places. And I mean, you have some quite striking figures in your piece, don't you, about the proportion of people who become judges or become top lawyers and so on. And in lots of these professions, it's more than half, isn't it, have been to just these two universities? Yes, it's quite staggering, really. Um, I mean, Oxford lets in about 3,000 students a year, so that's not many. Uh, and yet, as you say, uh, many professions, the law, the media... Uh, I guess medicine um, uh, in in the House of Lords, politics are uh, all uh, dominated by people who went to either Oxford or Cambridge. Alan, insofar as a lot of listeners are concerned, you were for a long time, twenty years, editor of the Guardian, in quite a good position to give out a lot of these um, establishment jobs of newspaper columnists or dare I say, leader writers like myself. When you were doing that, um, uh, how far or not do you think it weighed on you if people had an Oxford education? Um, uh, quite a high proportion of the people who you ended up appointing had got an Oxbridge education, whether you'd intended it that way or not. Uh, I think I think I thought it was ir- irrelevant, um, truly. And the the more I edited, the the, the fewer direct appointments I actually made. Uh, and we tried various uh, schemes um, to try and recruit people of of different kinds of backgrounds. We also started something called Cometers Free, which was an attempt to throw open the Guardian to many more diverse voices. But um, but I, I would accept we didn't move fast enough and we uh, we weren't diverse enough. Uh, I, I think probably compared with the rest of Fleet Street, we were at, uh, at the sort of more diverse end of the scale. But I think it's a fair criticism to say um, that that wasn't enough. And I, I mean, I without having done any kind of audit, I would guess that over a third of the senior people, both the people you see as a reader and the people you don't see are probably Oxbridge. Do you think that's fair? A third of the, the, the senior people? Yeah, either the, the um, senior editors or the columnists, you know. I think that may have been true 10 years ago. I doubt that it was true by the time I left, but I, I would have to sit down with a uh, with a staff handbook and 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 try and work out people's backgrounds. I mean, I really. I mean, I did. I don't even know if you, did you go to Oxford? Proto, yeah. You did. You see, but I, I, I so did you. And here we are. I did. <laughs> there we are. But I wouldn't necessarily have ever thought to ask you. Okay, so if we accept that um, what happens in Oxford matters for the establishment somewhere down the lines in in this country, rightly or wrongly. 
Then the next question is how bad at the moment is what we might call Oxford's posh problem? I think the truth is, the blunt truth is that Oxford is more comfortable, if you look at the data, taking people who are better off. Uh, and they are disproportionately admitting uh, young people from private schools or from selective state schools. Um, now, you know, the argument uh, against that is that, well, you know, is that surprising? These are very, very good schools. We don't want low, lower standards. Um, it's not our fault, Oxford, if the schools aren't providing people of a... Uh, competitive standard. So don't blame us, blame the schools. Um, and that that is one argument that Oxford has in the past made. And what do you make of that? Well, I don't like that argument very much because, um, I mean, I don't think it's a sort of very winning argument politically or with the general public. Uh, and I think it reinforces stereotypes, which aren't always true. I mean, in fact, the position at Oxford is, is far better than, than most people believe. But nevertheless, that sort of dismissive shrug of the shoulders and saying, uh, don't blame us, uh, I think is unattractive in a publicly funded, uh, elite, uh, excellent university. So uh, the question is, if you are, if you do care about having people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, then what are you going to do in order to make them able to compete and that's a sort of question that I think it's a debate that we haven't really had. I mean, we, we, we take it for granted that we would never discriminate against uh, women or people from ethnic minorities. But if you say to people, do we really know what we think about the provable disadvantage that people from uh, low-income families have, uh, do we care about that? Um, that seems to be a question that people find harder to answer. And, um, I mean, you're now an Oxford insider. You've only been there a relatively short time. Three years, is it? Just over three years. Three years. Um, and so you've gone into this world. Um, and um, reflecting your piece are some very different ideas about whether the rest of, or impressions, I should say, about whether the rest of Oxford does care. Because on the one hand, you say, it's done an awful lot. There's been access programmes, there's been a lot of money spent, there's been endless committees. On the other hand, you find tutors saying things like, we're already reaching practically all the candidates we possibly could and it would be at the expense of quality if we started going after anyone else. How, how, how are listeners meant to get um, some sense of where the real Oxford view is on this? Does Oxford really care? Uh, I think most people in Oxford really do. Um as I say, I think there's a minority who say, well, look, you know, don't blame us. But I think most people, including many of the heads of house and some of the heads of division and, and faculties, the vice chancellor, uh, they would really like to do better. Now, how you do better and how you get Oxford to change is a tough one because it's famously a very um, devolved power structure. There are something like 38 different colleges. Uh, all the divisions, all the faculties want their say. There are numerous university committees there are people crunching data all over Oxford and trying to get an agreement on how to change is difficult and in the end it's complicated by the fact that actually the admissions decisions are taken by up to a thousand admissions tutors uh, 
Mm. Uh, there might be 20 different subjects in each of the 30 colleges that admit um, undergraduates. And there might be three, three or four tutors per subject. So you've got this huge number of people who are taking individual decisions. Uh, and I think I counted eight different ways of uh, admitting people. So there, so there, each faculty has a slightly different way of, of crunching the data. So even though you've got lots of people in Oxford who do want to change, it's very difficult just to pull one lever to make that happen. And yet, the flip side of a very federal or collegiate or whatever you want to call it system is that um, if you're a bit of a entrepreneur, a buccaneer, you can you can you can try and do something different without it going through endless committees. And you have been doing a bit of experimenting at Lady Margaret Hall. Tell us about that. Well, we we decided to launch a foundation here. So if the problem is that schools are turning out people from low-income backgrounds who can't really compete with uh, straight-A stars from people from grammar schools or independent schools, then is there something that you could do to help bridge that gap? So we were impressed by a scheme we found at Trinity uh, College Dublin, which was the Trinity Access Programme that's been going for nearly 20 years. And their experience was that if you took people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and gave them an extra year to work on their their, their, their skills, their cultural gaps, their writing, their, their, their maths, then you could get them up to the standard of everybody else. And then after that, they did as well as anybody else. But so, so how do you get them? I mean, you, you go into a rundown bit of Barnsley or whatever and what? find the kids who've got the best results there even if those results aren't very good because no one gets very good results. Yeah so we, we've put the word out through many networks including organisations like the Social Mobility, Social Mobility Foundation and uh, at the last en- round of entrance round we had about 260 people applying for 12 places so it's a competitive programme to get on. Uh, we look into their their financial background and their uh, socio background um, much more thoroughly than any university can through the normal UCAS procedures, and then we interview them and we also get them to write about the ba- the, the, the difficulties, the barriers they've faced uh, in the course of their lives. And what you end up with is very remarkable young people. Uh, and when you listen to their stories, your question is not why have they got not very good grades, but how on earth did you do so well? There's a kind of inherited kind of cultural and class advantage sometimes that won't show up in the family income in the last year. For example, you might have parents that um, got divorced and they used to have a nice um, like uh, wealthy lifestyle and now they've gone down or there might be very educated grandparents in the background, even if the income's quite low. How deeply do you probe we look at about up to eight metrics, including free school meals and um, uh, obviously postcode um, uh, banding. Uh, we look at parental o- occupation. Are these the first people in their family to have gone to uh, uh, to university? We, we look for evidence of parental income. Um, and we can do that because this is a tailor-made program. So Oxford generally it just looks at very broad indicators that they're called polar and acorn which are about quite broad um postal districts uh, in which as you say um you can find people living in a so-called polar area which is supposed to be an area of financial uh, deprivation 
or, or an, uh, an urban center. That's about 20% of the population. But of course, within that, there will be many pockets of people who aren't very deprived. So mm. they're rather crude metrics. I mean, especially somewhere like Hackney, where I happen to be, you know, there'll be deprived postcodes with some very well-to-do people in them, I'm sure. Yeah. So, so you think you can switch that well, sort we, of thing we, off? Well, we do, because we do, we actually, you know, if, if necessary, we'll ask to see payslips. Um, uh, and the average parental income, family household income of the young people on the foundation year is about 20,000. So th- these are uh, fairly modestly off uh, young people. And... They've and have often, you ever got them in and found out that actually they've got very educated grandparents or something like that? Or no, no not in general. I mean, they, I mean, quite quite often they they have very complicated stories in in their family backgrounds. Uh, we've had we've got one refugee. We've had people who've been in care, people who are not living with their parents, people who've been living in hostels, and um, they're actually inspiring young people. Um, and they also go out and inspire others. We took a young uh, woman in the first year who's doing classical archaeology and ancient history called um, Verizo Cativo. Uh, she calls herself Miss V. Well, she's got a YouTube channel now with something like 10,000 uh, supporters. And she just blogs every week about Oxford and how it's not diverse, but it's accepted her. Well, three of the present course uh, who have just joined came because of her. Um, and V's now sort of, you know, she's been to number 10. She's been uh, she's been on a BBC One show. So you get a sort of ripple effect in which people can look at V and say, well, if Oxford takes someone like that, then possibly they would take someone like me. So you talk quite a lot about um, what the rest of the university is doing. You've just been telling us in detail what, what you've been doing at Lady Margaret. What's the rest of the university doing and why is it you come to quite a damning view about how ineffective um, the, the way that these broader access schemes as opposed to your specific scheme there have, have been working? Well, there, there are uh, other very imaginative schemes. Uh, university College is doing a, a, a version of what we're doing and they call it a bridging scheme rather than the full year. So that's, that's a, a kind of month-long course and I think... Uh, Cambridge is looking at both those options. Um, Pembroke has does something where they try and intervene earlier, so they try and g- get into schools around about thirteen or fourteen, and work with them for three or four years on the basis that it's a bit late to interve- intervene in year twelve. So there's the, I don't want to give the impression that people aren't doing things, but. Uh, when you look at the raw data, and there's just been a very valuable report published by uh, Oxford, which is being very open about the amount of money it spends and what it spends it on, the figure that leapt out for me was the amount of money we're spending on outreach, that is, going into schools and saying, look, please apply to Oxford, we we will, uh, you know, we're, we're a university that's available for everybody. So if you if you look at back over time, we've spent something like thirteen million pounds mm. going into schools, uh, and at the end of it, we have attracted one hundred and twenty six more students from low income backgrounds. So if you do the maths, that works out at a hundred and eight thousand pounds to get one low income student into Oxford. That's the equivalent of three outreach officers. Uh, full-time working to get one child into Oxford. Now, that doesn't seem to me like a very efficient way of tackling this problem. So that would, and then that would be the equivalent of an awful lot of people on the uh, 
foundation year type program that would be your argument well i th- i think the problem is and and we've had experience of this ourselves so lmh is twinned with haringey uh, and we did an exercise where we got Haringey Council to put together a pool of Russell Group potential candidates. Um, and they weren't very keen on coming to Oxford to begin with because they thought, why? You know, Oxford doesn't pick people like us. Uh, and we worked with them fairly intensively for about six days. Um, and in the end, we didn't take any of them. Um, now, it's not for me to second guess the the reasons why tutors didn't, take any of those candidates or who they were up against. That's not the role of a college principal. But nevertheless, it makes it difficult to go back to Haringey the next year and say, we want people like you. So there's this disconnect between the ambition of Oxford and its outreach work. And as I say, this highly federal system in which you've got maybe a thousand people who are actually making very difficult decisions. Um, with the aid of computer algorithms, so, mm. you know they might they might have say they've got a um, hundred candidates for uh, f- for places, uh, and and a computer will have you know done all the number crunching based on their GCSE grades, their predicted A levels. Yeah. They might have sat an aptitude test. They will have a a, a report, have, and that, that will have done some ranking, and then Oxford does take context into consideration and say well. Uh, we see that you've got a flag because you're from a polar or acorn background. But nevertheless, in the end, it's just not admitting many people of the sort we want to do. So Mm. something has to change. I just want to close by asking you a couple of slightly more um, personal um, questions. One is, um, I was intrigued and... um, I'll say surprised to find out that you were, in terms of your own schooling, an 11-plus failure. <laughs> I've been, I was, and um, I realise now for my parents that was kind of a catastrophe. Um, uh, it meant the difference between going to the local grammar school and going to the secondary modern school down the road. Um, so younger younger listeners won't know what a secondary modern school is, but it's uh, in, in, back in whatever it was, 19... Um, early uh, mid-1960s, that meant essentially you would go to a school that was not very academic, would be training you for a life of, you know, working with your hands or or a, or a middle-ranking clerical job. Uh, and th- your chance of getting to Oxford or Cambridge from a secondary modern in the, in the mid-60s was virtually non-existent. Um, and so my parents... Because they wanted to do their best for me, sent me to a private school, mm. and you know that was a huge thing in my life. I can't deny it. I was I was given a access to a privileged education, and I, from that I went to Cambridge. Um, and I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you today if um, if they hadn't done that. If you've been at the secondary modern, but do you um, do you think actually the sense that um, your um, bounce back educationally at that point relied on um, the family being able to do something for you privately has made you perhaps even keener than you might otherwise be to um, intervene in, in, in this kind of way? Well, I, I do think it's a sort of basic question of social justice. So I've got nothing against private schools. Um, you know, I went to one and I, I feel nothing but gratitude for the education I had. It was an extremely good education. So that that seems to me fine at secondary level, but tertiary level, 
if you've got uh, universities funded by the state, uh, it seems to me a difficult argument to make that we should be prejudiced in favor of private schools. Um, and, you know, you can cut the data however you like, but um, uh, at, at the moment you would expect on the, on the, on the people, the available tool of, but pool of talent to have about 70% of people uh, state educated uh, at Oxford or Cambridge, and uh, both those universities are, are some way short of that. And then um, you're an unusual Oxford ins- insider, as I say, in the sense that um, you had um, a long uh, and, uh, you know, very um, high up career in uh, the media behind you when when, when you got into this. Um hopelessly wide open question but what are the biggest differences between university life oxford life in particular and running something like the guardian well in in a sense there are quite a lot of similarities i mean they they they're both um filled with you know interesting really clever creative um uh, people who uh, are interested in information and and learning and ed- education so I, I think there are lots of overlaps um, the system of governance in Oxford is is unique. I mean, it's it's eight hundred years old. The collegiate system uh, it's really based on a kind of monasticism. So you go in as a head of house, and you are employed by the governing body. They employ you. You don't employ them, and everything has to be done by consensus. And um, I think some people come in and find that incredibly frustrating because they may be used to a world in which you could take quick decisions and just move quickly. Uh, but if you come to Oxford, you learn quickly that um, uh, actually you, that there's an awful lot of people who have to be won round and consulted and given the evidence before they move. So uh, Oxford moves slowly, and that can be frustrating. On the other hand, it's you know often ranked the best university in the world. It's been there for 800 years, uh, so it must be doing something right. Alan Resbridger, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Alan Rusbridger there, and to read his piece, If Oxford Shrugs, visit our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk, where you can find all sorts of great stuff on domestic politics, global affairs, as well as arts, culture, science and more. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir Rahim and Alex Dean here in the studio, and the December edition of Prospect is in the shops now. It's all about Europe and pulling Britain back from the brink. Be sure to grab a copy. The producer of this broadcast was Jay Elwes. Thanks so much to you for listening and please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review us. That really helps other podcast listeners to find us. Be sure to join us again next week for the Prospect Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.